prayer as we look into the Word this morning. Father, truly our hearts are overflowing as we admit that our cup overflows, Lord. We think about how many blessings we have received, how many benefits that have been gained in Christ. When we think about the riches of your Word, we think about the joys of knowing that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And we thank you, Father, for uh, the many uh, privileges that we have as children of God. Lord, we thank you that because of all these things, we, we can't help but offer you our praise and our thanks. And so, Father, we pray today as we look into your word, as we consider further the fruit of the, of the Holy Spirit, we pray that, Lord, uh, the seeds of your word, as they are spread about, that they would fall into hearts that will receive the word, and then the word will be, therefore, fruitful in the hearts of everyone who hears it today, and bringing forth fruit that remains. We pray this for the glory of your great name. Amen. Not everything that people claim is due to the work of the Holy Spirit is indeed the work of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. A number of televangelists, perhaps you've seen them on TV, have they claim that one of the signs of the Spirit being filling someone, is to be quote-unquote slain in the Spirit. And this involves a person who would fall backwards to the floor, supposedly collapsing under the supposed power of the Holy Spirit. The problem is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the Bible to support such a practice, such a response. I say again, and I would. this is going to be one of my theme songs in the next several weeks that we make our way through this wonderful passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 5, is that the primary focus of the Holy Spirit's work of grace in the hearts of people who are alive in Christ is to produce the fruit of Christ-like character. That is his main focus. And we think of virtues of godliness, if you will is the real indication and the fruit of the Spirit's work in a believer's life. It is to reflect to other people God's moral character on some level, as far as we can imitate it. So we are considering this morning this second character trait that God intends to be developed in every child of God, and that is the character trait of joy. So if you have your Bible and you look there at Galatians chapter 5, we're going to be reading there verses 22-23. Pages 1388, page 1388 in your pew Bible. We read, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk or live by the Spirit. I begin this morning by raising the question, just 
just to make sure we understand terminology, understand things that we're talking about here, what is the nature of biblical joy? What is the nature of biblical joy? You see, when some people hear the word joy, they assume that Christians are supposed to smile all the time. And so they think that when the Bible talks about rejoicing, they think about the joy of the Lord. Maybe you've, like me, you grew up and you've uh, heard a number of hymns over the years. There's one by Isaac Watts. When I first read this hymn years ago when I was a kid, you sing this and you think, well, this is the norm of Christian experience is to have a smile on your face all the time. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and my burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And then what does it say? And now I am happy all the day. Smile on your face. Is that really the expectation that God has for every Christian? Have a smile on your face 24-7? A plastic smile, I would say. Are perpetual grins the evidence that we are filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm not asking for us to look like we've been sucking on lemons all day, okay? I'm not suggesting that that's to be the norm either. But I'm just raising the question. Are we not, as Christians, are we we supposed to just sort of overlook the problems of life, the struggles of life? I want to be very clear here. I assure you that is not what Paul has in mind in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, when he speaks of joy. A plastic smile on our face every day at every moment of the day. Other people, when they hear the word joy, they assume that the Bible has in mind a sense of delight that we would experience and undergo when we encounter those moments when everything seems to come together. At those moments when we have favorable circumstances, clearly those are the moments where we know there's a deep down sense of joy. But I would just suggest to you and ask the question, if that is what the Bible is referring to in Galatians 5.22 as the joy that he speaks of here, isn't it true that unbelievers, people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, don't they experience spontaneous delight in temporary pleasures when things come together and they find that circumstances are quite delightful? They They need no work of the Holy Spirit to produce that in their hearts and inner attitude. And so again, I raise the question, what do we mean when we refer to biblical joy? Biblical joy. Well, we're talking about that which the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the believer. I came across one author who I think I've modified his statement, which I thought was already good, but I've tried to tweak it and make it a little bit better, I think, to add a couple of things. And this is what I came up with. The deep down, we talk about joy, the deep down abiding sense of well-being and contentment that stems from the satisfaction a true believer finds in God. I'm going to read again. I think it's in your notes. It's a deep down abiding sense of well-being. A deep down sense of contentment that stems from the satisfaction a true believer finds in God. That's what we mean when we're talking about joy. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit And it comes from within. It is a byproduct of the gospel of grace. Knowing that God has accepted us in Christ. 
knowing that in the gospel we find satisfaction in Christ, the Spirit of God gradually over time develops an abiding sense of contentment and well-being that is, in your notes, not dependent upon our temperament, and it's certainly not dependent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent on our temperament. It's not dependent on our circumstances. You say, well, how did you get that? I want to give you a couple of New Testament examples to show you that it has nothing to do with circumstances. And these are not expressions of people who have a plastic smile on their face all the time. So follow along with some of these reactions and think about how did these early believers react when they had various forms of affliction? Because I think these reactions are inexplicable apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in developing joy in their hearts. First of all, I'd like to suggest if you want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, page 1377 in your pew Bible. When there were several false pseudo-apostles, if you will, that uh, came and uh, began to question Paul's motives, they questioned Paul's ministry qualifications, they're really sort of destroying his reputation. The Apostle Paul reacted in this way to all that had been done against him to destroy his ministry. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 4. See if this sounds normal to you, based on good circumstances. Paul says, I am overflowing with joy. So far, so good. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Overflowing with joy in all our affliction. That's not a plastic smile. That's a person who's in affliction, but they nonetheless are overflowing with joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, back up one chapter. And you'll notice in verses 4 and 5, and then verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, In everything commending ourselves as servants of God. He says, here's my ministry. It's involved in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments. Verses 9 and 10. As dying, yet we live. As punished, yet we are not, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, he says, yet always rejoicing. You can tell that has nothing to do with his circumstances, being favorable, being pleasant. Did you catch that? What Paul's saying there? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Biblical joy can be found in a person who mourns, who is crying over various forms of brokenness in our fallen world. You can still have joy and be crying. Did you know that? Biblical joy and despair are not compatible. Here's another example, third example, from the 10th chapter of Hebrews. An incredible statement about Christians who were explaining, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews was, was just sort of amazed at their reaction, commending them because they had been persecuted and they had recently gone through this form of persecution. Listen to the way he responds to them. Hebrews 10, 34. He says, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Can you relate to that at all? Somebody taking your property and nonetheless your reaction to that is to accept it joyfully as from God. 
Now that's biblical joy, my friend. That is biblical joy. There's one more. 1 Peter chapter 1, page 1438. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. He is therefore saying you can be distressed by trials and still be rejoicing. And that is the work and the, and the, the effect of the Holy Spirit in the life of a true believer. See, the apostles did not hesitate to urge their fellow believers to adopt an attitude of biblical joy in every situation of life. So we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16, Paul says what? Rejoice always. Not just when circumstances are pleasant. Everything seems to be coming together just fine. He says rejoice always. And so I raise the question then, what goes on in the heart of a person who reacts to difficult circumstances with a deep down abiding sense of contentment and well-being in the middle of afflictions, difficulties, and struggles of people taking your property? I am insisting it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not just some emotional feeling or it's not just something that's based on what everyone else experiences delight when things go well. Clearly, this is a character trait that is only found by people who are filled and have been worked on and have seen the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. Biblical joy, you could say, is not only a duty, it is, it's commanded, but it is a privilege of everyone who has embraced the gospel of grace. Now, I want to think further now beyond... uh, just what is joy? I want us to think, where do we find it? How can we see and, and have this joy growing in our lives? How can we see this attitude become more evident through the power of the Holy Spirit? And so I raise the question, point number two, what is the soil into which biblical joy grows? I would imagine if most of us would assume that our joy is, is anchored many times to our own performance. When we have done something well, when we have accomplished something we've been working on for a while, when we've performed on the athletic field and we do things just the right way and things come together, I am filled with joy. I am celebrating. I'm rejoicing. That's the way that we usually think about joy. But again, we say true biblical joy, if you read the scriptures carefully, you will find that true biblical joy is not found in our performance. It is found in God himself. It is found in God himself. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, which was read earlier. And notice carefully the words that the Apostle Paul used here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, page 1398. Paul calls the believers there in Philippi to rejoice not in your good fortune... To not rejoice in your advancement, in your successes, in your good performance on something you've been working on a long time. No, he says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
As you read further in the passage, you find that in verse 5, we get a little bit of an insight as to why a joyful attitude is possible in any and all situations. And the answer is, it's because the Lord is near. It is in the Lord that we're going to find joy, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances. Paul goes on to remind his readers that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, sinners are reconciled to God who made us. And rather than hiding from God, rather than avoiding God, we can now enjoy God. God becomes a delight to us in the gospel. Rather than running away from God because of our guilt, because of our shame, because of His wrath, because of the fact that we are raising a fist and defying His authority, now through the gospel we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ because Jesus provided an adequate payment for our sins. And every sinner who repents, Every sinner who fully relies upon Jesus Christ and Him alone is able to stand before God in Christ's righteousness before His throne. And therefore, we, we, we look up and enjoy the God who made us for Himself. And because in the gospel, if it, because the gospel is true, therefore, there is no situation in this world, whether it is poverty or sickness or unemployment, or childlessness, or being called to live a celibate life. There is nothing that can change the privileged status that we enjoy as forever loved, forever forgiven, forever adopted children of God that we have in the gospel. And therefore, my friends, there's always reason to be filled with joy. And that was the testimony of Habakkuk, the great prophet in one of those books of the Bible that have the crisp pages that are very rarely ever been opened. But if you find your way back to the book of Habakkuk in chapter 3, he illustrates this whole point about joy is not in what we find going on outside in the world. It has to do with God himself. And he says in page 1116, Habakkuk chapter 3, he concludes his book with this incredible statement. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, And there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, that is an absolute crisis of the greatest magnitude in that culture because they were an agricultural society. So if there's no food, there's nothing, first of all, to eat, there's nothing to sell, there's nothing to barter with, there's nothing to survive on that comes out of the ground. And then he says, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there's no cattle in the stalls, which is another form of of assets they had at the time. So there's an utter economic disaster. He says, all those things may happen. He says, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He found his joy in God. Now I want to illustrate how practical this whole concept is of finding joy in God. I want us to bring it down to where we live every day. If you've been around a while, and I think most of us have, you are aware that everything in this world changes. It's amazing how many changes have taken place in my life. I mean, we could start, and I could talk talk to you about how I used to type my research papers in college on a typewriter. I don't miss that a bit. 
Except for those days I'm ready to throw my computer out the window and it doesn't do what I was supposed to do. But anyway, we lived in a day when there was long-distance phone calls you had to pay by the minute and you picked times at night so you would be a cheaper rate on your long-distance. It was just all kinds of things have been different. We used to do the rotary dial on the phone. Okay, you know I'm getting old. All right, so here we go. Things change. The job market changes. Technology changes at fast speed. Relationships change. That's what's going on in our family. We've got all kinds of change going on. People joining our family in in fast array here. The laws of our land change. Economic forecasts change. And praise God, the weather changes. The point is this. Apart from God, apart from God, there is nothing permanent and nothing totally reliable in this world apart from God. And because God is immutable, or you could just use the word God is unchanging, God is the same forever, believers, therefore, can be joyful. Because God does not change. And God will never change. He always remains the same. Hebrews Reminds us, chapter 13, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I can't say that. You can't say that. Nobody can say that in this world. It's only true of Christ. And therefore, we can rely upon Him 100% of the time. That's a reason to be joyful, my friend. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is no shadow of turning with God. There is no changing of the as as the sun goes through the shadows move it's like people they they use as an illustration of how things are always changing no nothing's changing with god his promises are yes and amen all sorts of unexpected events can startle us catch us off guard you cannot see around the corner what's going to happen in your future we all wish we could don't we oh if i could just see around the corner i could just see the next three years or whatever My friend, we're all going to face surprises. We're all going to face unplanned for developments in our lives. And yet the Spirit of God helps us to rejoice. Why? Because God's sovereign. Along with being immutable or unchanging, He is sovereign. He is ruling over all things. His providence takes into account every scenario that you might run into in life. I've been reading recently about John Bunyan, and revisiting some of the story of his life and just being amazed at what kind of suffering this man went through. Uh, Many of you know he grew up uh, as a tinkerer, a person who was not very well educated in some ways. His mother died when he was fairly young. His sister died soon after that. Uh, It means he had to get used to another mother bringing into the family there. He, He went through a number of trials and difficulties when he first married The first child was born blind. And then three children after that, after they were born, his wife died, leaving him with four small children, one of whom is blind. And he was one of a number of what they call nonconformist pastors who refused to follow all the dictates of the king of England, telling them how they have to order their affairs in the local church, and they felt as though the church needed to be changed or or reformed and, and modified in ways that were honor the scriptures, and so they kept to their convictions, and they 
as the different political winds shifted and sometimes the king would, would favor them, other times the king would not favor them, eventually he was imprisoned, leaving his family behind with no significant source of income, his four children, one of whom is blind. He's in prison for preaching without state approval, cut off from his family, cut off from his church, not for one year, two years, three years, for 12 years. He was in that prison. But it was during that time that he wrote and he wrote and he wrote and he read the scriptures and read the scriptures and wrote some more things. And he wrote while he was in prison, actually a second imprisonment, Pilgrim's Progress, the Pilgrim's Progress. After the Bible, they have, some have suggested it is the world's best-selling book. It's been print in 200 languages around the world, translated. And listen to what he says. Here's a man who I believe exhibited joy, even though he was in anguish at times. Yes. Did he cry at times? I'm sure he did. His heart, he said, he said it felt like the pain of having his flesh pulled off his bones to think he was separated from his little daughter who was blind. It was very difficult. He said, I was made to see that if ever I could suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be possibly properly called a thing in this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. He said, the second thing I realized is that I have to live upon the God who is invisible. And that's what he did. He became convinced that that was the key of learning to live off of God's word. And he began to realize that the reason he was in prison, the timing of it, the situation of it all, he realized that his times and the seasons, even for the sufferings of the people of God, are not in the hands of their enemies, he wrote. They're in the hand of God. And then he quoted Psalm 31, 15, my times are in your hand. He believed that God ordained his time in that prison. He didn't turn away from God. He was not angry with God. He was digging deep into the scriptures to know God in the midst of those things. And God gave him joy in the midst of it all. Listen to what he says. God, he says, has strode all along the way from the gate of hell where you were to the gate of heaven where you're going, the flowers out of his garden. Behold, he says, the promises you can find in the Bible the invitations, the calls, the encouragements, like lilies, lie all around you, he says. Take heed that you do not tread them under your foot. What's he saying? He's saying along the way, God showed him the beauty of his promises, encouragements, and the the things he found in Scripture that helped him grow and thrive in the middle of what must have been a very long ordeal. Bunyan found joy in God. Another way I would suggest it can help us in terms of application to follow the Spirit's lead, promoting the spiritual fruit of joy in our hearts, is to deepen our trust in God. Deepen our trust in God. Listen to Paul's prayer here. Romans 15, 13. Paul says, May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 
That is, joy will come about and increase the more I am believing, the more I'm trusting, the more I'm relying on the promises that God has for me. So that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The deeper our trust, you'll notice in your notes, the deeper our trust, the greater our joy. The psalmist says in Psalm 28, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him and I am helped. Therefore my my heart greatly rejoices and with my song I will praise Him. Notice the connection between believing and trusting and a heart filled with with joy and celebrating. Now I want to bring one other thing to your attention in terms of application to this important point of finding joy in God. And that is one of the hindrances to joy in the heart of a believer, is unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. After he attempted to cover up his adultery, getting himself, him, getting himself further and further into more and more sin, more and more problems, more and more evil, David, with his involvement with Bathsheba, finally humbled himself after a period of time. And he confessed his sin in Psalm 51. And what does he say in Psalm 51? His prayer was this. He says to God, Restore to me the what? The joy of my salvation. He did not have joy when his heart was caught up in all of this scheme, trying to cover up his sin, trying to indulge his sinful flesh, all those kind of things. He was robbed of joy during that time. And that could very well be the reason why some of us do not know and experience a vital joy in our communion with Christ is because we've never confessed certain sins before Him. Here's a quote by Jerry Bridges. True joy comes only from God, and He shares this joy with those who walk in fellowship with Him. So it's being in fellowship with God that is absolutely key. And that time, sometimes that means we have to walk through the, the humbling process of confessing our sin and then claiming the promises of the gospel and then sensing that joy come and renewing in your heart and soul as the Spirit draws us back to Christ and realize all that He's done for us in the gospel. Well, I could easily go on and on with that, but I think that was quite, uh, quite a uh, helpful, um, at least, over, overview. I want to look at another one here. The second point is that joy is also rooted in the creative and redemptive works of God. The creative and redemptive works of God. I would suggest that we can find a deep sense of wellness in our souls and our hearts when we gaze out at the glories of creation. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 92, You, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. So, I would suggest one way to get joy into your well up within your soul through the Holy Spirit is to spend some time bird watching. Or take a hike in the woods now that the snow's melting. Study the intricate beauty of a flower sometime as the, as the spring flowers will finally come out, out, of that, out of that soil. Gaze at the palette of all these vivid colors at a sunrise or sunset and let your soul be lifted up in joy to the Creator who made those things. Because as we see those things, it evokes from the heart of a believer the sense of, this is the handiwork of my God. 
He is the one who has fashioned these things and made these things. And it reminds me of His power. It reminds me of His his care. It reminds me of His provision for me. Matthew chapter 6. That's where we can find joy, in looking at His handiwork. And then I would suggest also even greater joy can be found, as we said earlier, appreciating the redemptive work that God has done and been accomplished through Christ on the cross. Because Jesus died on that cross... He broke the curse of sin. With His resurrection from the dead, we now can say there's reason to rejoice. Why? Because of the indestructible hope we have. That we have a a coming ahead of us, a full and complete redemption is on the way. 100% guaranteed. Nothing that can happen in this fallen world can hijack the internal joy that is rooted in our confidence that one day God's full and final redemption will be fully revealed. Now you say, well, man, my life is sure lacking in any kind of sense of uh, some kind of wonderful redemption of pushing back the evil in my life. Listen, what did Paul say? Paul who endured all those awful things, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, robbery, all those things, He says, yes, our earthly pilgrimage will endure momentary light afflictions. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Yes, there will be people who will mock us. And it's going to be more and more in today's world. People are going to do more than mock you. They're going to start persecuting you because there's a greater intolerance for Christians who express what their fundamental beliefs are in the public sphere. But when that happens, we've got to be like the apostles in Acts chapter 5 and say what? I can rejoice that I'm counted worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. That's not natural, my friends. That's supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, it was Paul and Silas who were singing there at midnight, chained in a prison cell, having been beaten by the civil authorities. Now, what would prompt them to be singing in the middle of the night? having been so mistreated, having had their rights tromped on. They knew they had in Christ. What they had in Christ was far greater than anything you'll ever find in this world. And Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What does he say next? Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. God is committed to completing His work of redemption in His people, and He has promised to fill His people with exceeding joy on that final day when we stand before His presence in all that glory, and all the majesty. Someday we're going to enter into that fullness of joy. Jude 24. And no matter how bad things get in this world, God's redemptive work is on course. And Jesus' work on the cross, His victory over the grave in His resurrection has supplied us with eternal security. We have a hope that no matter what happens, whatever disasters, whatever uh, tragedies may occur, we are still secure. Our hope cannot be taken away from us. 1 Peter chapter 1. And therefore our joy is not rooted in what we do for God. Hear me out now. Our joy is not rooted in what we do for God. It is rooted in what God in Christ has done for us. 
You say, where'd you get that in the Bible? Well, Jesus sent the 70 out, and they went out doing all these things in the name of Christ, learning how to do ministry for the first time. They come back, and they're starting to brag. Hey, look what we did. Hey, look what we did. Look what we did, Jesus. What does he say? Luke 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice in your ministry success, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Our joy is in the fact that God's redemptive work has been applied to our hearts. Therefore, we rejoice. Now, I know you're going to be mad at me. I have a third point, but this is very brief. Very brief. Stay with me, all right? Real quickly. Joy is found in the advancement and impact of God's truth. God's person, God's works, God's truth as it moves forward. These are reasons to, to find joy in. There are numerous examples that can be found in the Bible of people rejoicing in response of hearing the truth of God, hearing God's message, reading the Word of God, hearing God's prophets speak. Psalm 119, verse 111. Your words were found and I ate them. Sorry, this is Jeremiah 15. Your words were found, I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and a delight to my heart. Is that your experience when you read the Word? You find yourself finding joy in what God says to you in the Word? Psalm 119, 111. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are a joy to my heart. See, Jesus, when He instructed His disciples, He knew that His instruction was designed to do what? To bring about the benefit of giving them joy. So He says in John chapter 15, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made full. It's in reading the scriptures you're going to find a more likelihood of the Spirit of God working joy in your heart and life. The less you're in the Word, the less likely the fruit of the Spirit producing joy will be. Now, there's just one other example I want to give you of early believers rejoicing. And that was when they heard the spread of God's Word as the gospel advanced. When people hear the word, they begin to see the change of the word in their hearts and lives. Wow, that is reason to rejoice. Acts chapter 15, 3 describes how the joyous news of the Gentiles. Here are the people who they used to hate, the people they would avoid, the people that they thought were the cut-off people. They were in hearing the word, they were responding to the gospel, they were incorporating them into the church, and the response is what? It caused great joy to all the brethren. And regarding the progress of the gospel, Paul wrote Philippians 1. He says, In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So knowing that the gospel goes forward is another reason to be filled with joy. Along those lines, let me just say one final thing here. I think it was Chuck Swindoll said this. If, by God's grace, there is some measure of joy within our hearts, that God by His Spirit is developing in us so that in those difficult times, in those afflictions, in those, those rough circumstances that normally we would not have joy, but we begin to see a sense of, of calmness in our soul, a contentment of where God has placed us. I would suggest to you that joy is a winsome magnet that will draw people in. Because why? Because it is one thing they do not have. People apart from Christ, they have no joy. They don't know how to make sense of people who are somehow calm in their souls in the midst of things falling apart around them. 
And that's an opportunity, my friend, to let our light shine for Christ and to point them to the one who is the source of all joy. Let's pray. Before I pray, I just want to speak to anybody who is here this morning of whom much of what I said does not apply to you because there's no reason for you to rejoice because your sins, your sins are still an offense to God. And you're still carrying the weight of your sins. There's still a, a huge wall between you and a holy God. And you've never fully come to Christ and surrendered to Him. You've never cried out to Christ to save you, to place your faith in Christ alone, to rescue you from the penalty of your sin, and to place your faith in Christ who died for you on the cross. And therefore, you have no reason to rejoice because you are facing the judgment of God. And so I would call you this day, enter into this joy of which we've been talking about this morning. There is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And so, my friend, I assure you, if you will repent and place your faith in Christ, there is the promise of unspeakable, indescribable joy that will flood your soul. And I would call you even this day to come to Christ. He will save all those who come to Him and who confess their sins in need of a Savior. Father, I pray that You would, by Your grace, bring about an incredible harvest of joy in our hearts. I pray, O oh Father, that You would help us to see that when You put us sovereignly in situations in which we're called to suffer, situations that are extremely difficult, situations that are hard to bear, that they're only momentary and light afflictions in this world, but they will never rob us of joy, but they only make our joy stronger because it draws us closer to you. I pray, Father, that you might, by your Spirit, work this joy in our hearts. And I pray, Father, for anyone who's here today who has never come to Christ, who has never confessed Jesus as Lord, who's never said, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm the one who is a sinner. I need a Savior. I trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that that day, even this day, they might enter into the joy of true salvation. And Father, we pray that you might, by your Spirit, point us to Christ so that every day we might find our joy in you, that we might find a delight that cannot be quenched because of the riches of the gospel and all that we have in Christ. Help us, Father, to rejoice in you always. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.